That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. And this week, I took the opportunity to chat with an old friend, Victoria Jackson, who ran track and did a little bit of basketball with me in high school. And we used to compete at some of the national meets together in the summers of our high school years. And she went on to great success as a collegiate runner and a professional runner. And she's now a super, super insightful uh, history lecturer who focuses on history and sports. So I just wanted to get her perspective perspective on so many of the issues of today while bringing in that historical context after seeing some of the work she's been doing. So a little bit different than some of my latest podcasts, but um, fascinating nonetheless. And I love to have um, insight from someone who looks at it through a totally different lens than I do in my position. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Victoria. That's what she said. Happy to welcome to the show an old friend who used to play sports with me in high school, went on to be a tremendous professional athlete, and is now kicking butt professionally as well. Victoria Jackson, she is a sports historian and lecturer of history at ASU School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies. She's also an affiliated faculty at the school's Global Sport Institute. She got a PhD in history from ASU, an MA in history from ASU, a BA in history from UNC at Chapel Hill. She's also a former Nike sports sponsored professional distance runner, a former NCAA national champion, an NCAA All-American in the 10,000 and the 5,000 meters, respectively. And I am still friends with her mom on Facebook, which is how I came to know that beyond being a badass runner, she also is having really interesting and historically based conversations about current issues in sports. And after seeing a clip of her on Arizona's PBS TV, I uh, wanted to bring her on and bring her perspective to some of the issues that we've been sort of talking about in sports over the last year plus. So let's get started with a little bit of your background. I don't need to dive in quite as much as I usually do because I want to get to more current stuff. Um, but I do always like to start with my guests at a young age. So um, I guess give people more of a history into your background as a runner and maybe why you decided to, as an adult, combine your love of sport with your love of history. Yes. Well, Sarah Spain, thank you so much for having me on. It's so good to speak with you. It's been a long time. So. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Um, and it's been really fun to watch your career develop and take off and all of that as well. Thanks. So thank you. And it's been uh, a nice inspiration to follow you and watch you hustle and, <laughs> you know, get rewarded for that hustle because it's it's very much deserved. Thank you. So. First, let me say that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we grew up in the perfect community for young girls to um, kind of just organically play sports. And um, also, I could like run all the time, which is what I wanted to do. So we grew up in um, Lake Forest and Lake Bluff for me. And there's all these incredible trails and ravines and kids who could play outside without parental supervision <laughs> and, you know, play pickup games all the time. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, for, for people like you and me who, um, you know, kind of itched, itched to do more and, and, and push the boundaries of what we could do, 
um, playing sports and kind of fulfill that competitiveness that we wanted to, you know, fulfill, we could do so in mixed gender groups. So like, I never thought about the fact that playing like sports with boys was a thing that girls didn't used to get to do. You know, when you grow up in that way, it's just naturally, you think everybody has that experience. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And we certainly, I remember thinking, oh, Lake Forest is the perfect place. Why would anyone ever want to live anywhere else? And then I grew up and I was like, oh, there's people that are different. <laughs> there's diversity in the world. Maybe I should be around some of them, too. Um, people that are different from me are great. Uh, but it's still a wonderful place to live as long as you keep a good perspective on what on what you have and what you're lucky to have. Um, so you got to UNC. In fact, it's funny because we visited UNC together when we were traveling out there for a nationals uh, meet uh, over the over the summer during high school. And I remember I had packed five different pairs of shoes to compete in the heptathlon and the uh, airline lost all of my luggage until an hour before the meet. And I was like, well, I'm not going to go out and buy five different pairs of shoes for each event. So I guess I'm screwed. And then they magically made it in time. Um, but you and I made a little detour to UNC while we were out there for the meet. And you ended up going there. What was your experience as an athlete and a student at UNC? Yes. You know, I remembered. I, I, I want to say there's a picture of us somewhere in front of the old well, which would be fantastic to uncover. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, you know, when I was deciding where to go to school, that meet certainly helped introduce me to the kind of great institutions in the Triangle, the Raleigh-Durham area. And uh, I, I wanted to go to a good public school. And um, I don't know if you remember, probably... I don't, there was no reason you would, but my, my dad went to Michigan and my mom went to Ohio state and my dad still has season tickets to the big house. So like we would make the pilgrimage, you know, every weekend I didn't have a game over to Ann Arbor from the Chicago suburbs. And I like grew up going to Michigan football games and then realized there was a school very much like Michigan that didn't have as severe of a winner. And that was UNC Chapel Hill. So good public institution, better weather. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I don't know when you're like good at sports and are good at being really kind of focused on being successful in one thing. Like, yeah, I also cared about school, but really I cared about running fast. And it was at UNC that I realized um uh, I could do other things and explore and try, you know, what it, what you do in college, you, you learn about yourself um, during those kind of really important developmental years. And I was fortunate to become like a groupie <laughs> of these two historians, Mike Green and Theda Purdue, who taught indigenous history. I took like 10 classes with them, wrote my honors thesis with them and just like fell in love with history um, and, and decided that was, that was what I wanted to do and never thought about it until I started taking classes with them in Chapel Hill. So um, it feels like uh, some of your 
more recent work in, in talking about collegiate athletics was really influenced by your experience there. But I think you were very honest in saying in the moment you had zero idea that your experience was significantly different. Of course, you understood that football or basketball players were going to have all of this attention and gear and television coverage um, and certainly had a more rigorous schedule than you did as an as a runner. But uh, I think your realization after the fact of just what your experience was was actually buoyed by theirs. So um, you wrote a story for the L.A. Times about this that got a good amount of coverage. Can you sort of talk about how that experience sort of influenced looking back at your experience influenced your current work? Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, when, when you are competing and expelling in college sports, part of that, part of like riding the wave of performing well is buying in like hundred percent buying in. And um, so so you you can't really have any space, like space in your brain for critical thought, which is really interesting because that's what higher education is. Like it's the business of critical thinking. But we have this one space in our collegiate athletics where like you have to set all that aside and focus on sport. And and part of this is kind of amateurism too. So I like to refer to my experiences as an intercollegiate athlete, athlete as like, you know, drinking the amateurism Kool-Aid. Like I bought in, you know, I bled Carolina blue when I was at Carolina. I was a Sun Devil through and through and I competed at ASU. And, and that's part of what I think you need to do in order to excel and achieve. And so like when I was serious and scholarly, I was a historian studying indigenous history and later African-American history. And then, you know, when I was an athlete, I was an athlete and I kind of turned off that critical thinking cap. And there were kind of a collection of forces that came together about five years ago, one of which was this huge academic fraud scandal that started leaking out of Chapel Hill we learned about these fraudulent courses that um, football and basketball players were channeled into so that they could basically um, stay eligible to compete. Some of those, I mean, there were various iterations of this. Sometimes those classes were like completely fake. Other times there'd be a little bit of work. Um, But, you know, like, People like Julius Peppers and Rashad McCants, their transcripts have been made public. And we saw like the semester UNC basketball won a national title. Rashad McCants was enrolled in like four of those classes so that he could stay eligible and just focus on sport. And um, there's a lot of work studying the problems of the big time. But um, my I think my contribution is that this is really a reflection of systems of privilege and power and white privilege in particular, where people are benefiting from the system. And those people are in non-revenue sports and white people like me. And we're benefiting precisely because of the underpaid labor of black athletes in those revenue sports who are generating the money and aren't getting paid because of the rules of amateurism so that the system can work for people like me. And then the NCAA and the member institutions point to the athletes like me, the success stories who are benefiting from the system, earning college scholarships, 
going on to complete their degrees and have these successful careers and saying, you know, the positives outweigh the negatives. Yeah, there's some problems, but on the whole, overall, this is a just good institution and it needs to stay this way. So that's kind of um, what came together for me. Yeah, I mean, I think... There's been a lot of conversation about non-revenue athletes living what we think of as the idealized version of NCAA athletics, where they get an education for free and they get to play their sport and potentially enable themselves to go on to a professional career. But if they don't, they're very well set up for the next steps by very virtue of of demanding that players in the revenue sports focus solely on uh, that sport. It denies them the ability to get the education that they presumably are getting for free, right? That we're arguing is the reason why they shouldn't be paid even as they bring in all that money. Is there an answer in your mind to the problem of revenue sport athletes and pay for play? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it just, I think the fact that this is all taking place in the space of higher education, like we just, we can't, we, we can't be satisfied with the status quo any longer, especially now that we, we know and are continuing to learn more about CTE and football. Um, and, and, I mean, a first step is just allowing athletes to monetize and make money off of their name ima- names, images, and likenesses, um, the, the, the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit. Right. Um, as a first step, and and we have historical precedent for this in the Olympic movement, and whether it's holding those monies in a trust, um, which is exactly what um, USA Track and Field did as kind of a stepstone out of amateurism in uh, the 1980s, and then allowing those athletes to have access to that money once they've graduated or left school or whatever. You know, that's one part of this. And the other part is meaningful degrees, um, kind of thinking innovatively about how we can better serve student athletes so that their experiences are more in line with the regular student experience, but also like taking advantage of this unique opportunity that is intercollegiate athletics. Um, A lot of the rules of amateurism inhibit innovative thinking because it's you know, an NCAA violation. And I've been thinking about, you know, so we have athletes who are on the road, like athletes in sports that play regular season games all of the time, sports like baseball and softball and basketball. They're on the road so much, but they're also often on the road within, you know, in in the case of my school, the Pac-12 conference. Well, what if we thought innovatively about designing a course for those student athletes across the members of the Pac-12 so that, you know, if Oregon State's in town playing ASU, those students can come to my class. And, and, you know, that ends up being an extra benefit because it's not available to the regular students. So if we just get rid of amateurism and start thinking about ways to better serve student athletes and allow them to, to make money off of their names, and images and likenesses like the colleges do, I think that's a great first step out of this mess. How might a pay-for-play model, even if it comes in the form of trusts or player likeness fees or anything like that, affect the experiences of athletes like you and me that you do admit you had this incredible experience partly on the backs of the athletes that allowed 
the money to be coming in for a school like UNC? How do you reconcile keeping those experiences and opportunities with paying the players that are creating revenue? Yeah, um, you know, that that's the other part of this. Um, I mean, the, the, the big time continues to escalate and I mean, we have like we have a system of commercialized amateur sport in the U.S. that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world to the point where like other countries know this athletes in other countries know this and they come and use our colleges as the developmental pipeline for their national teams. So the percentage of international I promise this is answering your question. <laughs> I'll get there. <laughs> Um, the percentage of international athletes in non-revenue sports is very high and increasing because of this. And it's because, like, the level of competition for co- the college athlete, like, college sports for non-revenue athletes is too high. It's, it's too professionalized. It's too crazy. Like, the expectation for what college sports should look like is too high right now. It needs to come back down into kind of a more sane model and level. And it it really, if it's going to take place in schools, it really should be high school sports writ large. And so, I mean, the, the amount of people working in intercollegiate athletics and the coaching staffs and the scale of travel and competition in these events are insane, I, I mean, it's it's fantastic and it's wonderful that these are professional sports. I mean, let's just call it what it is. These are professional sports for amateur athletes. And I don't know if higher education should be in that business. So in the end, it's about separating sport from universities, even if that might result in the lack of opportunities for males that play non-revenue sports and, and women in, in non-revenue sports. I think that's, yes, I think that's the only way to navigate out of this in a way that's prioritizing fairness for the athletes who've been historically exploited and taken advantage of in this country for so long. And and that's disproportionately black men playing in revenue sports, this kind of demographic that's most underserved and most vulnerable in the higher education space. Yeah, there was a stat in your story for the LA Times, um, a study that found that black men represented 2.8% of undergraduate students at UNC, but 62% of the basketball and football players. Those athletes graduated at a rate of 45% compared with 72% for all athletes, 74% for black males and 90% for all students. So those athletes um, not getting the education or graduating at a level of the rest of the student body um, and making up such a small disproportionate number of the total students in general. Um, and I think you're right that we do find, you know, you called it a modern day Jim Crow. And um, I guess I wonder, at, you know, how important do you think it is when we're dealing with issues like this to actually use a history based context for the issues of today to have historical context on all of these things like comparing it to Jim Crow oh that's such a great question thank you (laughs) (laughs) Um, well and first those stats come from um, Dr. Sean Harper who is at USC and the Center for Race and Equity so I want to give credit for that 
Um, yeah, I mean, that that's absolutely, like, we can't look up the system without historical context. And that context is that it's a, it's a failure of the desegregation of education in this country. And um, kind of that plus um, this uh, legal scholar I really like, Derek Bell, his concept of interest convergence theory. And so if we look at the history of education in this country and we look at the history of big-time college sports, especially the school like UNC, right? So UNC, for its first 100 years, was all white and all male. Um, and then women start to attend. And then people of color start to attend. And it's, it's athletes who desegregate the space because in order for you to gain access to this place, you got to give us something in return. Otherwise, you're no good to us. That, that's kind of the, the Derek Bell interest convergence theory. And, and those athletes who desegregate these college campuses, um, they are exceptional human beings because they have to be. They have to be better than. And they also have to have something in them that wants to take this on when there's such great sporting traditions. It's historically black colleges during this time period as well. Like Grambling was like a professional football um, team. And so if you're the person who decides you're and you know exactly how horrible it's going to be to try to desegregate this space, like you, oh, my goodness, you know, and, and on every single campus this took place. And so, you know, this process starts in the South, um, you know, in the late 60s, really the 70s. And um, it. It's only by the 80s and really the 90s that we have um, the the teams that the the demographic makeup of the teams that we see today. But beyond athletics, the 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 access just hasn't been there um, in in higher education, and and it, this is a bigger issue. And I think when we we kind of have that grounding of historical perspective and understanding, we're better able to step out of our ideas about the greatness that is college sports and think more about this as a place of higher education and how to best serve students and, and more broadly our society. I want to get back to that in a minute, but first I want to say, you know, as a graduate of UNC, as someone who had such an incredible experience there, was there a point at which you had to change your headspace about how you viewed that institution because you know there's you mentioned that 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 study uh, of of students there that found that 60 percent of the 183 unc athletes that played football or basketball from 04 to 12 uh graduate student researcher found that 60 percent read between fourth and eighth grade levels and eight and ten percent read below a third grade level. You're looking back and looking at your experiences, but there's many opportunities to be very critical of this institution and the fraudulent uh, ways in which they maintained player eligibility. At any point, did you find yourself defending it? Um, because I think we see that all over the place, whether it's Baylor and Art Bryles or what's going on with Urban Meyer right now in OSU, the defense of an institution being so strong that we sort of put aside the things that normally we would take great pains to point out and and shine a light on did you have to decide to to not defend your own institution at some point was there an awakening moment um 
No, um, because this this story of academic fraud was covered up so well and for so long. And at the the moment that I learned about it, I was in graduate school at ASU working in the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. And like, so like one of the people who was writing about this was Taylor Branch, who had, you know, he, he's somebody who writes about civil rights history and um, has this trilogy on America and the King years that I'd been reading in graduate school. He's a Tar Heel. Um, and, and so he's writing about college sports. He's, he's taking his analysis from the civil rights movement era and, and looking at Jim Crow and then applying it to college sports. So that was the world in which I was immersed. And I mean, it was horrifying to learn what was going on at my institution, but like, there, there was never a thought in my mind that I needed to get defensive about this. In, right. In well, the context, sort of, of course, the context that you were working and learning and obviously led you to feel um, compelled to look at it more, uh, more unbiased <laughs> than the average fan who isn't, you know, working in that space. So let's get back to what you what you talked about in terms of the historical context, because I love that PBS interview in part because, as you were being asked to address current issues of sports activism, like kneeling during the anthem, um, you said that we needed to take back. And take a step back and look at sport itself as a big political project and specifically Theodore Roosevelt and football. Can you get into that? Because I didn't know any of that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, well, fo- like the sport of American football is born at the turn of the 20th century at elite institutions of higher education. And so it's, it's you know, the rules are literally kind of developing at institutions like Yale and Princeton and Columbia and to a lesser degree Harvard, but, but mostly Yale with Walter Camp. And it's, it's in this moment in which we have incredible anxieties surrounding white manhood in intellectual circles, you know, ideas, you know, thinking about Theodore Roosevelt and the closing of the frontier and kind of, men who might become emasculated because they're no longer working the land or working with their hands. And, you know, especially for the next generation of political and business elite and and military elite, they need something to continue to develop their manhood and also take ownership of this proper role as white men at the top of the world's hierarchy of the races. And so the way to do this is through the kind of safe, sanitized space of the gridiron of the game of football. Men can learn how to take on these roles through playing the game. And, you know, ideology doesn't have to actually make sense as long as it's powerful enough. So they might not even be playing. They could just be watching. But by watching the game of football, you know, they are now taking you know, this, this place at the top of the hierarchy. So it's a project of, of white supremacist authority. And like Theodore Roosevelt, you know, there's this crisis in 1905 because there are a number of deaths and injuries um, at boarding schools and, and colleges and high schools. And um, the leaders from these elite institutions have a meeting 
um, in Washington. And, and basically the president of the United States is saying, we can't lose this game. We need this game to continue this project. Um, so, and his son played at Harvard and got his face bashed in. Like the president's son got his nose broken playing football. And yet still this sport was so important. It needed to live on for all these um, meanings and purposes beyond the field of play. It's funny that you mentioned that because I now remember that I actually saw a drunk history episode about Theodore Roosevelt saving football. <laughs> None of the white nationalist uh, or intentions to create power dynamics part that you had. It was more about him uh, just uh, allowing the game to continue. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think when you there was this incredible Atlantic article years ago that was sort of the definitive piece on the history of football in NCAA and how it has evolved into something so different from where it began. And uh, I, I always sort of remember that as I'm trying to consider uh, pay for play and, and what we've kind of mythologized it into being. Um, and, and this just adds to that, right? Like what it started out as and what it's become. And it became democratized for the same reasons that any other sport is a meritocracy. If you can help a team win, they might forgive now domestic violence or sexual assault and then race or color that they otherwise wouldn't want to interact with, right? So the entry point for working class and people of color into sport was that it could make you money. And that's how it changed for being about power for one class to instead being about this meritocracy for money, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. That's sort of fascinating to me, too. So how then and why, I guess this is a larger societal question, do we see the maintenance of power in sport despite that meritocracy element of it? Why do we still see power structures where we have predominantly white owners and coaches and university leaders versus the actual players being, um, in some cases, predominantly men of color? Um. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, there's there's a couple of different ways to access it. One is, um, you know, the difference between, um, well, one is wealth and and the difference between kind of salaries and wealth and and generational wealth. Um, so that like, I mean, there's, I think there's one non-white owner in the NFL, um, and and to be an owner in the NFL, that's just like next level wealth that you're, you're dealing with at that level. Um, but as far as like the kind of the power, um, if we, if we're looking at the college sports space, the power of this institution, um, operating at local levels, um, I think there's a, there's, you know, and if we were to disrupt it, so say we're we're going to try to disrupt the college sports enterprise, there's such a fear of of loss um, that if this changes in any way, like what it means to be American, you know, we lose that. And part of that is the kind of um, local and national identity that's bound up in college sports and sports in general, and the kind of patriotic component of it. But we organize. Our, our seasons around the coming of college football in the fall, like that, that is our ritualized festival, um, in, in many communities around the country. And so I think, you know, if you were to, to mess with this space, there's, there's just a, a fear 
of 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 a loss of something that's you know understood to be quintessentially American. That's what she said. Hey, everybody, don't forget to go to ESPN and Apple Podcasts and subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain so you always have the latest episode. Don't forget to rate and review it as well and tell all your friends how awesome it is. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, patriotism that's now linked to it. And in that PBS show, you also kind of talked about um, the start of the anthem in 09 and how it's odd that we don't seem to remember the days when it wasn't the norm to start a sporting event with the anthem. I get it for the Olympics. I think you're representing countries. So when you get to the medal stand, playing the anthem of the winner is just a very cool way to symbolize that victory. And maybe even in international matches uh, for certain sports, I get sort of recognizing each country beforehand. But to me, when you actually get to the roots of why we play the anthem in, before sports instead of, say, going to a play or a concert, um, it doesn't make any sense. It is about the sort of sport industrial complex and, and, and military, you know, paying to be associated with this as a recruitment tool. Um, and it's odd that we don't remember when that wasn't the case. Uh, what's your historical context for how we and why we now view the anthem as something that just goes with sports? Yeah, um, I mean, you know, Howard Bryant's new book, The Heritage. That piece for NPR um, was so good. Yes, um, it it really speaks to this as a product of a a post-9-11 world. And, um, you know, things things that we just kind of take for granted in the U.S. really aren't part of the sporting experience in other countries. And I think it also speaks to how insular – um, American professional sports are compared to other professional sports leagues around the world where, um, you know, we have a kind of a global <laughs> ownership of, you know, right. if you look at um, the, the soccer leagues around Europe, um, but also the, the makeup of the players is international. We, we don't have anthems being played in the English Premier League or La Liga or, or something like that. And, um it, it, it speaks to um, kind of ideas about American exceptionalism and how, you know, we call uh, the champions of our professional sports leagues world champions, even though it's an American domestic sport league. And then we have these layers of nationalism placed on top of everything that's going on in this space as well. It's, it's quite disconnected from the rest of what's going on in the sports space around the globe. What do you say to those who, as we perhaps see more political and social activism in sport, partly because of the coverage and partly because of just the times we live in, what do you say to those who believe that sports should be a safe space or that people should stick to sports, whether it's the athletes or those covering them? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, First of all, like... um, Sporting institutions themselves are political. Um, there's politics bound up in these institutions themselves, whether it's, um, you know, again, the kind of layers of nationalism or patriotism placed on them or um, the owners having the privilege and space to donate to, um, you know, inauguration parades or that sort of thing. Um, but also it as far as activist athletes, there's this long history and tradition of 
athletes using the platform of this space to speak out on issues that are very important to their communities because the people who are most vulnerable in our society don't have that platform and athletes who feel a responsibility to leverage this space and speak for those who don't have the power to, to bring attention to these causes. Um, there, there's just a responsibility and an obligation. So, you know, it's what Howard Bryant calls the heritage. You're joining this heritage. And um, it, it's not just athletes. It's athletes who are part of um, this longer history of black entertainers who traveled around the United States, but also the world kind of following the lines of imperialism and white supremacy and then kind of used that moment, this kind of um, access to this space to then communicate with others, carry, um, you know, messages of dissonance and underground resistance. And, and that's how, how work slowly but surely over time gets done. I guess, you know, there's also something to be said for the idea that because you entertain us, you you ruin this purity of what we're watching and sharing with you by disagreeing with us. And that's such an unfair expectation to hold for someone who is more than just the sport they play. Um, and it feels like we do that so much more in sport than we do in other things. There are certainly people who say, I don't really care what that actor says about my president or whatever else, but it feels like much more often than in anything else, entertainment wise, we are less willing to listen to athletes opinions on things outside sport. Yeah, that that's real a really good um, kind of analysis of this. And I think it, it speaks to the legacies of amateurism as well. And kind of a, a high art, low art binary that, you know, Athletes are performance artists, and what they're doing with their bodies is also creative expression, and that creative expression might also include kind of political messages, the way you, um, you know, shake off a defender and, and shoot a jay, or, you know, the, the way you kind of dance around somebody with a soccer ball, like, there, there are layers of identity, some of which are political, that are being expressed in creative ways when you play sports, just like the way, you know, an artist might paint or a musician might um, express a, a line of, of melody. And so I think it's a product of um, this, this kind of false binary between high art and low art. It's a product of amateurism as well that, oh, you just use your body, and that's not as, sophist right. as sophisticated. Well, and I think race, too, because when you see stuff like Laura Ingram telling LeBron to shut up and dribble, or when you see people speak specifically about how athletes shouldn't be given a, a microphone to speak on social issues, so often the narrative there is that they're sort of lucky to be rich, Right. I don't need this yeah. privileged athlete talking to me about the difficulties of being a person of color in society as if they are. They were undeserving of that wealth. Right. Versus, say, mm -hmm. a musician or, a, or or anybody else. And so much of that, I think, is race too. that 
um, your wealth is not the same as mine and your wealth doesn't give you the same agency as I have to feel like I'm, I speak for anyone outside of myself. And, and I think that's tied back very much also to sort of the layers of power in sport. You, you just play the game for the rich owners who get to decide how the game works. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting too because, um, you know, when we, as we continue to hear more from athletes, or at least the spotlight is, is more because we have more time on 24 hour news networks and every sports site imaginable. Do you find that there are topics that you want to cover differently? Or there are classes that you want to teach because of the changing landscape since you began teaching to now? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I've developed two classes out of frustration. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One was a history of baseball class. And like the subtitle is America's pastime and American dreaming. Um, Basically I was sick of students writing in exams about Jackie Robinson when the question or the material we were covering had nothing to do with Jackie Robinson and like <laughs> problematic um, narratives around it, like very progressive, you know, <laughs> um, simplified narratives, very much like the way Martin Luther King has been remembered or his memory has been co-opted. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to teach a baseball class that, that makes this messy and complicated and shows how um much like football, baseball is a sport that becomes part of the project of white male supremacy at the turn of the 20th century and how, you know, women and um, African-Americans are pushed out and how it's actually more complicated, this narrative of the desegregation of baseball. And so that was one that I developed out of frustration. The other was kind of anticipating um problematic uh, celebrations around the 50th anniversary of the podium protest moment in Mexico City in the 1968 Olympics um, that I'm kind of anticipating that symbol of Tommy Smith and John Carlos, you know, when they raised their black love fists in the air in Mexico City in 68, um, that that image and that symbol will become detached from the realities and actualities of what the Olympic Project for Human Rights was actually about mm. and becomes part of this, again, simplified progressive narrative about progress over time. Do you so find teaching that class this fall? Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you, I mean, you said you were frustrated by some students' responses to stuff. Do you find this is an incredibly divisive time and you come bearing all sorts of historical context and facts, uh, but not everyone's interested in facts. I would like to hope that people who are in your classes and who are studying are, are, are wanting to learn, but is there often pushback or, or students whose sort of theses you thesi you would know that it's theses uh theses that you just in, like just vehemently disagree with who are unwilling to move past a certain perspective on some of these issues yeah i well first arizona state university is um is a very different university than it was um i listened to your interview with um arash markazi yeah and- 
how he had gone there for a year and then transferred. So we partied his way right <laughs> <was> out. <laughs> right, right. That it had this reputation for a party school. And like, um, at least from my perspective, I don't know if he shared it, like rich kids from the Midwest who just like wanted to go to school to party. Um, and it, that is not ASU. ASU, um, our president, Michael Crow, has worked very hard to make this an institution that serves um, the people of the state. And so the socioeconomic diversity of the state and the region is reflected in our student body. Um, so we are all about access and inclusivity. And so the majority of the students who are attracted to a class like mine, like share the lens. And for those who don't, I work very hard. I, I say that I developed this course out of frustration, but it's more, it, it's not blaming the students. It's, it's kind of blaming the stuff that they've consumed right in their lives to this point and so i work very hard um to be aware and attentive to meeting students where they're at and giving them the materials so that they can form new ideas and come to conclusions on their own and not kind of turning my students into mini me's by like banging them over the head with you know my big liberal ideas Um, it's about providing students with the tools to learn and kind of develop a love for learning and also the kind of vulnerability with that comes with recognizing that you don't know everything and that (laughs) you can always learn more. (laughs) So that, that's really my, my approach, but um, it's about just providing and providing and providing with um, sources from the past with a diversity of ideas and interpretations of those sources and just kind of giving students everything so that they can make their way through these materials and have those aha moments themselves. Are there topics you find that students tend to like the most? Um, yeah. And, and some that are like super wonderfully surprising. <laughs> um, I, this baseball class, I, assigned this book by Jennifer Ring, who's a political scientist at uh, Nevada, Reno, and it's called Stolen Bases, and it's about, um, it's this hidden history of the fact that women and and, um, African-American men, but but really she's looking at women, how women were pushed out of baseball and how hard it is for women to play the sport of baseball. And I know you've you've covered uh, the women's traveling base, uh, the girls traveling baseball team, yeah. and the ways that that people just react with such anger to to girls <laughs> yeah. trying to yeah. gain access to the space. It's crazy. And I was nervous assigning this book because um, it was a summer class, and it was, you know, majority um, men students. And I got so many emails after that class saying they just love that book and it you know, blew their minds. And that's what, that's what makes teaching sports history in this way so much fun. Like somebody told me I should put on my business card that I'm in the business of blowing minds. Like, <laughs> you, you think differently about the world when you use sport as your lens into understanding the past. Um, so that, that's really fun about teaching sports history. I love that. I'm going to end on that because that's such a great, first of all, I love in the business of blowing minds, but also using sport to like, 
use this lens to change the way. I mean, I, I'm talking about that all the time about the benefits of of using sports as this sort of uh, microcosm for larger issues that you get to talk to people who otherwise wouldn't necessarily want to listen to you or talk about topics that people might not be interested in until it touches their sport or their team or their player, which I love. Uh, Serena Williams tweeting about postpartum depression and talking about maternal death rates is one recently that I've really been trying to uh, bring attention to because it is something that we don't talk about and then you get the greatest of all time uh, getting a platform for it and it's pretty it's pretty powerful uh, before I let you go you do have to do the one thing that everybody does but nobody expects I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition it's the Spanish Inquisition that's right nobody <laughs> expects it number one what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with Oh, my goodness. Oh, I wish I had hops. <laughs> you had speed I, I instead of hops. Running. Yeah, yeah it, it just makes you lose it. Different muscles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number two, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Oh, this is going to be obscure and nerdy. Um, so I play the violin, and there's this really awesome violinist who does like experimental music, and his name is Kishibashi, and it would be one of his albums. That's such a teacher answer. <laughs> Total teacher answer. Uh, number three, if you could switch <laughs> lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Um... Could I go kind of dark with this? Yeah, for sure. I think I would want to switch with Vladimir Putin for a day. <laughs> Interesting. Do you like, have some journalists you'd like life. to off? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> Apparently he's allowed to do that. So I don't know if I can say that. I think that's pretty like known. I don't think that's very controversial for me to say. I think it's pretty established that he likes to, uh, you know, take care of things. Uh, number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? I don't know. I, I anticipate being very scared in the future. I have a three-year-old son, and I know I scared the crap out of my parents, so I imagine he's going to be doing things that are very <laughs> scary for me in the near future. <laughs> That's a good answer. Um, number five, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, gosh. Anything related to breastfeeding. Um <laughs> Uh, and leaking and I uh, is this this is probably like not anything your listeners want to hear um, <laughs> but I pumped exclusive I had to pump exclusively because my son was premature um, and I had this awful travel experience where I was in Germany and I broke my electric pump. Oh no. And like was over like really painfully oh, no. about to explode <laughs> trying to find a pump. But like they have really great maternal leagues in Europe. So like they don't have electric pumps there because nobody needs them. So oh, I had no. to like pump in a public with a hand pump, like sitting in the middle of this German department store. And oh that's- no. Wow, that's, that's a good one. That's uh, that's a good one. Haven't had that one before. Um, <laughs> number six, what would you consider your biggest failure? Oh man, I I think I mean athletes just learn how to roll with failure, right? Like <laughs> failure is what makes you the strong person you are. Um, probably. 
Like, I would say my professional running career was a pretty big failure. I ended up injured for most of it. Mm. Um, so, but, like, failing really hard uh, makes it easier to take risks, I think. Yeah, You're absolutely. like, I've, I've had, like, the biggest fail. Whatever. I'll just try some more. Number seven, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Um, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Hmm. Um, I think distance running, like, if you watch, you know, the New York City Marathon or the Boston Marathon on TV, you're like, oh, those athletes are super fit and they're running fast, but it doesn't look like they're in that much pain. Like it is so uncomfortable to do the work that goes behind those races. And so you're continually exposing yourself to being uncomfortable. And I think I've trained myself to, to just embrace situations that make me uncomfortable. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, number eight, have you ever been in a fist fight? <laughs> yeah, no, I have not. <laughs> you would lose. You are very small. <laughs> I mean, you're probably scrappy because you're athletic, but you're not, you're not bringing a lot with that, with that, uh, with that fight. Uh, number nine, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Oh, I think it would be wonderful if I was a little bit more laid back and carefree. <laughs> you don't get to achieve all the things you have and have an 11 teen page resume if you're laid back. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. <laughs> uh, that's a good goal, though. That's a very good goal. Um, and number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Three words. Um, earnest. Uh, conscientious. And energetic. Ooh, those are good ones. Uh, and the bonus question, who would you recommend or who would you like to hear me talk to on this podcast? Ooh, a Chicagoan. Um, Peter Sagal. You, it would be so great for you to speak with Peter Sagal. Do you know P- P- the um, show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Yeah, for sure. On NPR? Yeah. He's, he's, so he, Peter and I, anytime we're in the same place, we try to run together. Um, he's a lifelong runner and super awesome. And you two have very quirky, cool personalities. I think that would be a good mix. Awesome. I love it. I'll, I will uh, get his information from you and con him into doing my podcast under the guise of, of running, which I will not be doing <laughs> with him. Um, thanks so much for your time. This was so interesting. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really appreciate this. We gotta, we gotta hang out sometime. I know you'll have to Maybe let me when know you're when you're in Arizona. Yeah, well, it's always the first weekend of March, so you can put it on your calendar well in advance. We're always there from like Ooh, Wednesday know. night to Sunday, the first around the first weekend of March. Perfect. And then let me know if you're back in Chicago. I will. Thanks. All right. Awesome. Thanks, lady. Oh, and another thing. 
This week's That's What She Read is uh, from ESPN.com, Andrea Adelson. And there's a lot of stories that are out about Urban Meyer, Ohio State, and what's currently going on with the firing of assistant coach Zach Smith and what Urban Meyer knew, what Gene Smith knew, uh, what's going to happen going forward. And by the time you listen to this, it might have already happened. But this story I found interesting, not for specifics on the details of what had come out or what was yet to come out, but more so in Andrea looking at how times have changed, the difference between Urban Meyer building a championship program at Florida and some of the things that went on there that didn't seem to bother people much versus what's going on at Ohio State and and things that we are no longer willing to just shrug off in the name of sports and success for our institutions. So uh, I recommend reading the story. Um, there hasn't been any decision as of this taping on what his future would be, but uh, I really liked her approach, which is to say that the world around Urban Meyer seems to have changed, but maybe he hasn't. So it's called As Society Has Evolved, Urban Meyer Hasn't. It's by Andrea Adelson. You can find it on ESPN.com. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.